This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley in Cornwall. I've headed down to Cornwall for the G7 Summit. Strictly speaking, in Falmouth at the International Media Centre, uh, rather than uh, joining uh, Joe Biden on the beach at Carbis Bay. Uh, coming up, we've got a great bit of insight into what goes on behind the scenes at summits with William Hague, uh, some former diplomats, and Kate Garvey used to work for Tony Blair, and what really goes on behind the scenes uh, and what we can expect to see over this weekend. Uh, but first, the columnist panel, and it was an absolute treat to have some real-life people in front of me. Uh, Esther Webber, formerly of this parish, now of uh, Politico, she joined me in the media centre. I was also joined by Tom McTay, who wasn't in person, as you will discover why. But this is what happened when I caught up with Esther Weber and Tom McTay. Ah, we are in the International Media Centre. It's, it's so nice as we see other journalists. And I'm joined by a real-life one now, too. Esther Weber from Politico. Hello, Esther. Good morning, Matt. And welcome back to Times Radio. Thank uh, you. And I think we've also got on the line Tom McTay. You there? I am. I'm outside the International Conference Centre, about five <laughs> minutes away from you. <laughs> and explain why you're not inside, Tom. Because I'm useless at admin and I had to take a COVID test uh, and sit in a tent for half an hour until I was... It's fine. We've I... all done it. When I was on uh, <laughs> breakfast this morning at 8.30, I was also sitting in the holding bay waiting for my test result. But the good news was <laughs> I didn't have COVID, and uh, so I've managed to make it in. So, um, uh, Esther, first of all, what, what do we make of the G7 so far? Is it living up to expectations? Um, well, so far I've mostly been in a tent, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's a dramatic setting here on the coast, and um, I guess they'll be hoping the weather clears up, so Boris can kind of show it off a bit more dramatically, perhaps. And I guess the sort of big thing everyone was watching yesterday was whether Joe Biden would issue any kind of words of displeasure about the situation in Northern Ireland. And that that didn't come to pass. It was all sort of happy smiles. And um, and therefore we got off on a on a sort of a note of love, which I think <laughs> I think the UK will be happy with. So much so that um, Jill Biden had the word love written on the back of her jacket. Yeah, that but... was that was a bit much. It was sort of, <laughs> I, I'm half expecting some of the others to turn up with live and laugh, and then we could have the whole. <laughs> then thing. we can hang them on the wall. Yeah, uh, exactly. in your kitchen. 
Um, uh, Tom McTague, we, we spoke earlier in the week about this, but you wrote uh, a, a mammoth profile uh, on uh, Boris Johnson at the beginning of the week. But one of the, uh, in the Atlantic, but one of the, the, the key takeaways from it was that Boris Johnson had previously told Joe Biden he didn't really like the phrase a special relationship. Well, Joe Biden seems to have completely ignored that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're back to the uh, the old cliches here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch it, isn't it? Because Boris Johnson is saying he doesn't like uh, the special relationship as a phrase because it makes us seem a bit needy and weak, uh, which it kind of does. And yet Biden uh, hands him, as the Times revealed this week, this kind of extraordinary rebuke ahead of the G7 to say that they, the United States were very unhappy with what Britain was doing in Northern Ireland. And that's a way of getting it out of the way before the G7, so he doesn't have to do it publicly here. And then you have uh, Boris Johnson responding to that by saying, oh, I agree with everything the president says. Yes, we're <laughs> on exactly the same page. And you think, well, doesn't that look a bit needy and weak? You know, That was in response to Joe, Joe Biden saying something weird about their wives. Um, oh, yeah. uh, haven't we, yeah. haven't we, basically, haven't we both got hot wives? It was the, was the <laughs> very weird opening gambit. And I suppose the key thing is, although there are differences, and uh, we spoke to uh, Sir Peter Westmacott. Uh, no, who was I spoke to earlier this week? Um, uh, uh, Matthew Barson. Matthew Barson, former American uh, ambassador to, to the UK. And he was saying that, you know, you don't want... Uh, you know, the special relationship doesn't mean there is no light between us, but, you know, that we agree on everything. You know, a normal relationship is there are differences and there are uh, um, uh, differences of opinion, that sort of thing. But I suppose, Esther, the key thing is that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden have more in common than perhaps Joe Biden has with many other world leaders. He's meeting President Putin next week. And he's, ultimately, he is closer to Boris Johnson on most things than he is lots of other people. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think there's um, the gulf on issues around post-Brexit and trade has maybe sort of um, exaggerated any sort of difference and tensions between them. There are a lot of things they do agree on, um, particularly when it comes to kind of providing a counterpoint to Chinese and Russian influence. And that's obviously going to be a big theme of this summit. And um, and also, on the other hand, you can see there are ways in which Johnson actually has more in common with Biden than he did with Trump, despite some superficial uh, similarities. And what about the other world leaders, um, uh, Tom? Because some are making their uh, others are making their, their debut as well as Joe Biden. Um, Mario Draghi, the new Italian Prime Minister. <laughs> Uh, hasn't been to one of these before. And then Angela Merkel, it's her, her last one. So is it, is it sort of tide changing on the sort of world stage? If a, if a tide can change on a stage? <laughs> <laughs> We'd all get wet. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 to some extent. But then they all feel quite old, don't they? And they've been around for ages, you know. So we've got Merkel and Draghi. Draghi hasn't been to one of these as a, as a leader, but he's been around forever. And he's a sort of... He's the establishment, you know, the global establishment's uh, Mr. Establishment. Um, so then you've got you know, Boris, we all know, but Biden's been around forever as well. You know, I think I was reading a profile of Biden the other day and he first met Netanyahu something like 30 years ago uh, <laughs> as, you know, as a senator. So, you know, this, this in, in some ways, it, it feels kind of like we've known these figures for ages and we're, we're, we're still preparing for a, a major 
shift in the tide. Like, you know, how long will Biden be around? What, uh, who, who comes next with uh, in Germany? Is there going to be a shift there? You know, there are all these tensions about Germany's position towards China and towards Russia They're being very soft. So you kind of we're almost sort of waiting to see what's going to change, because in a way, the, the person that hangs over this uh, summit, is still Trump, you know, with his uh, shift towards China and all the rest. And actually, a lot of them are kind of taking up some of that agenda, I think. Uh, and what about the role of France? Because, um, Manny McCord actually landed at uh, Newquay Airport about 10, 15 minutes ago. Um, does the op- is there an opportunity for him, with Angela Merkel leaving the stage, a bit of a vacuum in the sort of the leadership of Europe? Does it, do, do you think Emmanuel Macron... Uh, sort of will seize that opportunity, Esther? Um, yeah, there, there's definitely um, that. There is that kind of opening for him there. And, yeah, you can see he will be keen. Um, but on the other hand, there is the um, there is the possibility that that role is sort of slightly uh, cramped now by Biden and Biden being, you know, on the world stage back in dialogue with Europe, kind of business as normal. Um, so that role has become a bit more squashed for him. Yeah, what I do think. you think, Tom? Yeah, I mean, in a way, um, Macron has got this slightly more dignified position, or as the French would see it, a sort of dignified position, that he can he can push back pretty strong against uh, Boris Johnson. He can push back against Biden. Um, by saying, you know, get off my patch. You know, they've got the very clear policy of being, uh, you know, having this European strategic autonomy, essentially autonomy from America. You know, they they were quite happy in a weird way with Trump because it, it sort of confirmed to the sort of political elites in Europe, look, we can't go on being so dependent on on the US as we have been because we might end up with a nutter like this in, in the White House. So I think, I think, Macron and Merkel and others that are here from Europe, they're, you know, they're going to be a kind of united team. I mean, Boris is going to have to sort of needle his way into these, uh, into these groupings, because in some ways he might seem a little bit isolated. Yeah, I suppose that's the, the, um, uh, the going forward. And what about the other people that um, to, uh, Boris Johnson has, has invited, uh, Tom? What does that tell us about where he sees our uh, other alliances beyond the G7? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting element of this uh, of this summit. So he's invited um, four of the four, well, five others, actually. He's invited four other countries, uh, South Africa, South Korea, Australia and India. And this is part of this idea of expanding the G7, which when you think about it, is a very weird organization of uh, of sort of Atlantic countries, Atlantic democratic countries. Um, into something that is more global and more uh, anchored in the idea of sort of shared values, shared dem- democratic values. But then he's also invited the chair of ASEAN, this group of uh, Southeast Asian economies. And why? And that, and that is currently held by, I think, the leader of Brunei, not very democratic. So the, <laughs> the, reason, <laughs> the reason we're doing that is because we want a trade deal with, uh, with those guys. So you kind of think, again, it, uh, the French and the Germans say, oh, give it, give it a rest. You know, all you're using this for is to increase <laughs> British influence and to get some trade deals. And they're probably right. Uh, what do you think, Esther? 
Um, well, yeah, trade is now the big thing. It used to be sort of something fairly square, you know. It was part of the DTI ones. It was part of the business pages, <laughs> not the front yeah, pages. Yeah, exactly. And now this sort of is foreign policy, and that is is the the big show in town. So I think it's it's kind of inevitable that he would he would make those kinds of overtures. So who who will emerge as the winner, do you think, from this weekend, uh, Esther, first of all? I think it has to be Biden. Biden yeah. will emerge. What do, yeah. you, what do you think, uh, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be Biden, doesn't it? He, he can't lose. He just looks good compared to the previous guy. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine there'll be a lot of that around the campfire tomorrow night. It's just just reminiscing. <laughs> I wonder if they'll all be like, sharing stories. You won't believe what he said to me. <laughs> Maybe that's how they'll all bond over their hot buttered, buttered rum. Esther Weber from uh, Politico there and Tom McTague from The Atlantic. Coming up, what really goes on at these global gatherings? Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, let's take an in-depth look at what goes on at big summits like this. Matt Jolly, live from uh, the ha- not, not not from the House of Commons. What am I talking about? I'm live from Cornwall at the G7, uh, where uh, the um, I can see live from uh, Newquay Airport the uh, Guard of Honour, the soldiers, sailors, and RAF crew shuffling around to get themselves in a nice straight line before the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi comes down the steps of his plane. Uh, that's what's happening uh, at Newquay Airport right now. 
Um, but what we, we thought we'd do is sort of try and take you a bit behind the scenes of what go, goes on at summits like this. People who've been there and done that at G7s, obviously uh, it was previously a G8 before Russia got kicked out. And we're going to hear from uh, several people who've, who've uh, got first-hand experience of what really goes on at uh, summits. William Haig, we're going to hear from, former Conservative Party leader. He was Foreign Secretary under David Cameron in 2012 when the UK last hosted one of these summits. The, that was a G8 uh, um, uh, at uh, Loch Learn in Northern Ireland. Uh, there were eight countries, of course, in those days because uh, Russia's since been uh, kicked out, as I was saying. Uh, Sir Nigel Scheinwald, uh, we'll hear from. He's a former ambassador to the United States who went to a number of G8 summits and actually is what's called a Sherpa, which means he went ahead of the summit and prepared, uh, sort of had to prepare the ground with representatives from the other nations involved, basically agreeing a whole load of stuff so that when the leaders actually get into the room, it's only the difficult uh, things which need to be signed off. We'll also hear from Sir Ivan Rogers, who was the permanent representative of the UK to the European Union under David Cameron. He was also a private secretary and a, and a, a foreign policy advisor to Tony Blair. And so he's been to a whole load of these gatherings of uh, world leaders. And Kate Garvey will hear from, uh, a former gatekeeper of Tony Blair, uh, who uh, chose Glen Eagles as a venue uh, for the G8 uh, back in 2005, and then jumped to the other side and was part of the uh, Make Poverty History uh, campaign. So we'll hear from all of those uh, in this half hour. Let's start off by asking what on earth is the point of a G7 like this when we know these leaders can meet over Zoom? Is it just a photo opportunity? Well, uh, let's hear from William Haig explaining what really the point of it all is. The starting point is that uh, we've seen a decline of global governance. You know, everybody can see that in the pandemic. That the, the, One of the worst things has been no international coordination. Yeah. Um, this has not been very, it's very different even from the global financial crisis 2007 and 8 in that time global governance has dramatically declined that crisis began with George W Bush speaking to Hu Jintao to coordinate the US and China's response did this crisis begin with Donald Trump you know <laughs> phoning Xi Jinping to say let's do this together uh, the, you only have to think of that difference to see how much it's declined so nobody's actually running the world you know, there is nobody at the wheel of this ship of planet Earth that is, that is sailing along when it hits a storm. So you do have to then try to get like-minded countries together. They're not going to sort this all out at the United Nations. And the G7 has always been meant to be the, some like-minded countries, major democracies. There was the time when Russia, when I was doing it, Russia was still in it. Um, that didn't work out very well. They were not <laughs> like-minded and they, were, they did not become a, a democracy. And it's very important, it, the, the, the other great importance to it, uh, well, two other things. One is in the run-up to the COP26, it is a very important moment to get the United States and other Western democracies aligned on action on the environment and climate change. And the other thing is in a world where we're seeing strategic rivalry between the US and China, it's important for democracies to stand together. And so by inviting Korea, Australia, India to take part in some of these proceedings, the British government is correctly trying to assemble a broader front of democracies, a coalition of democracies. As William Haig there explaining why the G7 is happening uh, from a global point of view. But what about for the UK in particular? And what will Boris Johnson be hoping to achieve this weekend? Let's hear from the diplomats Ivan Rogers and Nigel Scheinwald talk about the key issues facing the Prime Minister uh, during this summit in Cornwall. It is the first opportunity for many others really to sort of get to know him at all. Because bear in mind, you know, 15 and 15 months of his leadership being completely dominated by COVID. He hasn't seen most of these people at any length in person for any time. 
And as I say, that's very unusual for a leader who's been in office as long as he has. So I think that's important. I think he'll want to, you know, you saw what they did last week at the finance ministers on tax, which was actually, a, you know, the, exactly the same priority as we had eight years ago under Cameron when we did a lot on the so-called base erosion profit shifting agenda, which was, you know, getting going at that point. Tax, t- transparency, trade, climate change were all big issues then. So I don't think, I don't think the issues have mostly changed as a consequence of Brexit um, at this level. Obviously, the the other big issues, well, the two big issues really are vaccines and what are we doing for the least developed countries? Because there's now an enormous gap between how things are progressing in uh, in the world of the G7 and uh, the least developed countries. So what's the G7 going to do about that? So that's a very big issue for them. I mean, the other issue, which is really on Biden's mind, and there I think there's plenty of business that Biden and Johnson can do, even though they're very, very different characters with different view, different uh, views of the world and a different different ethical senses, but I mean Biden wants a discussion of kind of what what do democracies do together, and you know and how do we demonstrate over the next decade or two that a liberal democratic rules based order is the way to go rather than the authoritarian challenge to it. You know we're in a different world now, which is much more equal between continents and with many more rising and emerging economies than we had then. Plus, of course, the role of China and China is the elephant not in the room for this uh, for this discussion. They're not legitimate, though, in the sense of representing the world. They can't just do a tax deal and impose it on the rest of the world. But here are the kind of major democracies of the Western world, plus Japan, getting together. And obviously, the prime ministers invited the Indians, the South Koreans and the Australians as well. This is a. This is a pretty big moment, I think, with the arrival of Biden on. How does the liberal democratic world demonstrate it can still deliver for its citizens in a post-financial crisis, post-COVID world? Any prime minister will want um, to show uh, personal leadership and rapport with his colleagues um, at a summit of this kind. Um, And I think this is a particular test for Boris Johnson. He hasn't done very much of uh, of this before. But, um, you know, you've got to align that personal and political set of objectives with the policy objectives. And um, and this is perhaps a little bit vaguer for this for this summit than for some others. Um, But he clearly has to come out of it with a forward agenda and a forward sense of direction, primarily on responding to the um, to the epidemic and and the issue which he's drawn attention to of getting the world vaccinated. I mean, that would be a classic G7 subject to create some momentum on. And he needs to to concentrate on that and a couple of other subjects, um, you know, which will which will come up at the time. But so I think that you know, it, it's aligning politics and policy. That That's what um, G8s are about, along with a lot of backdrops and photo opportunities <laughs> and and schmoozing and uh, and everything else. Yeah, it's quite 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 the backdrop I've got here at the uh, International Media Centre, looking out at the uh, the boats uh, arranged in the harbour uh, here in Falmouth. Uh, that was Nigel Scheinwald, uh, and before that, Ivan Rogers explaining 
um, about some of the, the policy discussions that go on at the G7, but also the backdrops. Um, and, you know, that's a very important consideration when you're uh, deciding where to hold uh, a big summit like this, because as well as the meetings behind closed doors, there's lots of photo opportunities and that sort of thing. How do you end up in somewhere like Cornwall? Why, why Cornwall? Why not uh, Devon or Somerset or Surrey or Wiltshire or, or Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland? Uh, well, Kate Garvey, uh, a former aide to Tony Blair, has been at the logistical coalface and explains how it works and how you go about choosing where to hold a summit like this. I was in charge of events, visits, presentation and planning for the PM in number 10 in 2005, ahead of the Glen Eagles Summit. And so my job with my foreign office counterparts was to travel the country and look at hotels that could not only host eight world leaders and their entourages, that could be protected from uh, for security reasons. So seas help. Having a natural barrier of water is no doubt saves a lot of cost and organisation to secure a place. But also you then need to think about the world's media descending. And whilst I think there's definitely a desire that the media aren't sleeping Uh, right next door to world leaders Uh, they do need to be close it is a democracy and it's important they have access so you have to find another place nearby that can cope with that Um, some sort of central airfield uh, base that you can fly into um, is the case although Tony was a keen train taker in the UK so that also helped when we went up to Scotland and yeah it had to be you wanted to give people a, a to show Britain at its best. So you wanted to make sure the food was good. I had previously been to Evian for a summit and gosh, the wine and food was unbelievable. So I wanted to prove that we could do similarly and Glen Eagles fit the bill. Uh, that was Kate Garvey there talking about how uh, they chose Glen Eagles for the 2005 G8 that Tony Blair hosted. Interesting her talking about trains there because of course Boris Johnson flew down to Cornwall upsetting people who... Um, go around being easily upset about things. Um, I'm in the uh, media centre, the International Media Centre in Falmouth uh, for the G7, uh, but we're near but not that close to uh, what's actually uh, happening uh, up on up at St Ives at Car- Carvis Bay, where the um, uh, summit is actually taking place, uh, uh, where the world leaders will start properly gathering at around lunchtime today. But what goes on right inside the summit uh, once uh, those leaders get together behind closed doors? Let's hear again now from William Hague, Nigel Scheinwald and Ivan Rogers explaining how the negotiations happen, the work of the so-called Sherpas, and what we really want to know is what can go wrong so um, the officials will have prepared 95% of the uh, communique, although if, in, in times when Trump was president, <laughs> the whole thing could just be ditched at the last yeah, minute. With a tweet. Uh, <laughs> yes, on a plane <laughs> on, on the, the way back, right. insulting the Prime Minister of Canada <laughs> along the way. So the, um, but 95% will be agreed, but there will be some bits in square brackets which are still to be agreed. So, for instance, if at this forthcoming G7, I'm making this up, but if the United States wanted to say, well, we all agree that we're not using Huawei uh, equipment um, in certain places, um, well, that would be in square brackets, and, you know, probably um, one of the other countries would be saying, no, we want to argue about that at the summit. And and that's what the leaders have to focus on. The other reason they matter, these, um, they're not just a sort of rubber stamp of the um, 
communique is that um, the leaders get on with talking about other things that are not in the communique. And that creates their personal relationship. And um, even though in government, the way bureaucracies work, the way foreign ministers work is so important, you still cannot beat the human connection between leaders. You know, think of um, Thatcher and Reagan, yeah. you know, or Roosevelt and Churchill. I mean, somebody like John Kerry, I worked with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and then later with uh, John Kerry. His style is to call like every 20 minutes or so. So a phone will ring that you didn't even know the phone was there. <laughs> and uh, but the American, you know, the Pentagon has got it all worked out or something. And that phone's ringing. John Kerry's on the phone. And uh, he was, what do you think to this idea? And then you finish that. And 20 minutes later, you're in your car. Another phone rings. It's John Kerry again. And he has that style of trying to sort things out. Um, what about Hillary Clinton? Uh, um, was she a texter? Hillary or? Clinton, is, who I all, has become a great friend, and <laughs> I was speaking to very recently, um, it did it in a different way, though. She preferred to, OK, we're going to have a, a call in two days' time, we have a full agenda, and we spend yeah. a whole hour. Just a different style. Yeah. Neither, is, neither is, is better than the other, but the, you have to adapt. If you're the British Foreign Secretary, you need to get with the style of that, yeah. of the American Secretary of State. Not because you're going to agree with them all the time, but you, you need to know, whether are you speaking to them three times a day or once a week? There, there will be a series of texts emerging, which the Sherpas, senior officials from each government, will be working on. And they'll be working on in the backgrounds of, in the, backgrounds of the meeting itself. Um, and then, you know, th there's a reaction between what people say in the room um, and the, the drafting process. So if um, if the Japanese prime minister says, um, and I really can go no further than X, or my bottom line is Y, then that, you know, that creates a ripple effect, and the drafters will have to somehow to take, um, to take account of that, and there'll be a huddle, and um, something will be done to, um, to, to get that right. And then the, the Sherpas will, at the end of the meeting, you know, carry on into the night in order to produce a final version for the, for the following morning. But the, but the rest of the entourage, um, you know, advisors and officials, um, you know, will get involved in little bits of this according to their, to their area. So I would have been involved you know, on anything to do international security or foreign policy. We have the other people there from the Treasury team dealing with uh, financial and international economic issues. And you'd all get involved on your issues to, to troubleshoot and firefight as issues as issues arose. But, you would, you, but you're absolutely right. What you wouldn't get is heads of government round the table haggling over text. That doesn't happen at G7 um, meetings. It does happen in the European Council. European summits are just like that. And it's one reason why heads of government often dislike those more than, more than G7, because it, it really can be highly technical and highly um, you know, in, you know, immersed in uh, the detail of an issue. So for those of us involved in summits, um, it really is a lot of waiting around for your principal, for your, for your boss to emerge from, from a meeting, punctuated by mad bouts of um, frenetic activity. You know, when there's a need to redraft something or sort something out or go into huddle with um, your German or American or Japanese opposite numbers. Um, and of course, these these events are often in quite pleasant places. So I remember, you know, in 2004, we were in America in a seaside resort, and we played football for an hour on the beach um, with Tony Blair, because they're, they're, they are a slightly more, um, they can be a little bit more 
of a holiday atmosphere at one of these things than, um, than is uh, normally the case at a, at a summit. Uh, you're very much at the more ceremonial rhetorical end of the, of the political spectrum at a G8 uh, or a G7 meeting. Um, but Glen Eagles was extraordinary for two reasons. I mean, first of all, because we prepared it for two years beforehand on, um, on aid to Africa and the developing world on the one hand and trying to get some movement on climate change on the other. Uh, and Blair had announced his intention to do that uh, well in advance. And we worked, you know, very, very uh, in a very structured way leading up to the summit and got quite um, specific results out, particularly on, on, on Africa, less so on, on climate change. But of course, what everyone remembers Glen Eagles for, and they, they might remember that, but primarily they'll remember it because it coincided with the, uh, the, the 7-7 bombing attacks uh, in, uh, in London, uh, in which 52 people died and hundreds um, you know, were injured, um, which happened just, literally just as the summit was starting. Um, and what you saw then was what often happens at these summits, they, they do get overtaken by an event. This was an event of a particularly shocking and tragic kind. And the key there for Tony Blair as um, the host and the leader of that summit was to essentially turn on a dime and try to manage uh, the fallout and the, the tragedy of the, of the bombings in London at the same time as getting the result that he, that he wanted out of the summit itself. And he had to return to London um, uh, in order to supervise the reactions to the, um, to, to the bombings and then go back to Glen Eagles uh, that evening um, to, uh, to preside over the rest of the summit. So, you know, a time of extraordinary uh, stress and strain Oh, it's, I mean, it's one set of headaches after another and the, and the substance of what they're going to discuss and what you've prepared for them by way of kind of communiques and whatever is the least of the problems. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, on the other hand, there's something nicer and, and more intimate about G7s. It was G8 in my day, obviously, uh, eight years ago, um, than, than the G20 or than European Union summits because you've got a much smaller number of people. So, of course, they're extremely um, important and often self-important, but very few people in the room. And what distinguishes G7 meetings from you know G20 or European meetings or most other summits I've ever been to and ever prepared for is they are often more genuine, more serious conversations. It's not leaders reading out speaking notes to each other. It's a genuine conversation, a genuine engagement. Uh, they can be quite feisty. They can be quite amicable. And leaders tend to like it because it's one of those rare occasions where they get together in a group like that and they actually have genuine, serious conversations about you know, the issues that are on their minds. The job when you're a Sherpa in the ridiculous jargon of these summits, you know, you are doing everything from sort of, you know, bag carrying to um, to doing the kind of communique. When, I, when we did the communique at Camp David, I then got lost in the middle of the night. We finished writing the thing and debating and arguing it at 4.30 in the morning. And then I went in the wrong direction and, you know, pretty much nearly got in the wrong bed, you know, or got shot by the American security <laughs> services. So that kind of thing happens. With leaders, I mean, what, you know, what, what tends to go wrong is they're in, you know, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and about to have the wrong conversation with the wrong other leader. Because, again, what they like about G7s is not just the plenary discussions, which, as I say, although they're small and intimate, are nevertheless plenary discussions and it's all kind of pretty on the record. But they're going to have lots of bilateral chats and multilateral chats with each other. And you can do an awful lot of business in the margins that isn't officially on the agenda.
but actually sorting these things so that they turn up in the right place uh, and the right conversation with the right pack is a complete nightmare, as you can imagine. Hillary Clinton once said to me after eight hours of uh, sitting in a meeting, William, we don't have enough fun. Uh, <laughs> said, Why don't we go out and have some fun? Did we, you? we went out to a restaurant. This was in Brussels okay. think, or, uh, or in Washington. This wasn't particularly the UK uh, meeting. But the, um, it, it's quite separated. You know, the, when the heads of government meet, they, they're heads of government. Right? They're not going to mingle with the likes of foreign ministers uh, <laughs> at that moment, although they will all have, uh, of course, concerted their strategy beforehand. So foreign ministers have a separate meeting. And in fact, they've already had that. Yeah. Uh, they've already had that meeting. Um, and um, you can make them fun. You know, uh, I think it's good to add a personal touch to it. Um, I took them all out to the, the foreign secretary's country residence in Kent at... Uh, evening for dinner and in the magnificent library there I had the librarian find something relevant to each country you know an antique book or map that was some for each country so we could um, you know we could have our drinks but we could also appreciate the history of each of the countries in the G7 so you can add things like that to it but of course a lot of it is interminable um, meetings going back to the Camp David one again I mean they'd had a long day there uh, they were on the fourth kind of plenary session it was something deeply exciting and important like energy security, which was an American priority. And you can imagine with the Russians still there. But actually, Stephen Harper, you know, was Scarborough, who was the Canadian prime minister, was scarpering out of the room because he wanted to watch an absolutely critical ice hockey match. And no sooner had he got out of the room than Frau Merkel sort of said, is the television on next door? Because I want to watch the European Cup final, which was with, between Bayern Munich and Chelsea. Um, and the sort of session just gradually broke up as leaders drifted off and thought they'd rather watch Bayern Munich versus Chelsea than uh, further, further discuss energy security. Uh, there they are. That was uh, William Hague and uh, Nigel Steinwald and Ivan Rogers there. William Hague talking about um, the need to have fun, which is basically what Boris Johnson's laying on for uh, the world leaders uh, with a beach party. They're also going to the Eden Project uh, for dinner uh, as well uh, with the Queen uh, tonight, Friday night. Um, but as well as the media, there's also a number of charities, NGOs and that sort of thing hoping to lobby the leaders for, for their cause in Cornwall. Uh, lots of them actually having to sort of protest on sites some distance from where uh, the world leaders are. Uh, but Kate Garvey, uh, who worked for the Make Poverty uh, History uh, campaign and is still campaigning on the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, uh, she told me how difficult it can be for charities to make their voices heard. You have to speak loudly and loudly and, loud and, and more loud. We, we didn't just do um, a concert in, uh, the, in Hyde Park. We had a huge campaign of people travelling to uh, both Edinburgh and Glen Eagles. Um, and we made a lot of noise uh, through that, and and then you and then you've got to try and get into Glen Eagles, which wasn't easy. And, and I had the advantage because I'd organised it. So once we got permission, which by the way there were conditions, we got permission. Um, I got permission to take Richard Curtis uh, and Bob Geldof, and then the Bono team as well, um, into Glen Eagles. And Nigel Scheinwald, um, who was the Sherpa for the UK then, um, fantastic uh, British diplomat, phoned me up and said, OK, you can bring Bob in and, and you can meet the president of the United States. That, that was uh, George Bush at the time, as long as you promise that Bob won't swear. 
So I turned to Bob and said, we've got the meeting, you can go in, you can pass on all, all the messages, but you can't swear. And he turned to me and he said, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.